On this Looking at Lyme podcast, we are heading deep into the bush. But if you're bitten by a tick, do you know what to do? Does your backcountry guide know what to do? Any professional guide needs wilderness first aid training. That is just common sense. But how much do they know about Lyme and tick-borne illnesses? Is there special training that they need? On this podcast, we're going to meet a professional who trains guides and ask him, how well prepared are they out there? Michael Crawford is an instructor with Slipstream Wilderness First Aid. He has a lot of experience keeping people healthy. He started 35 years ago in the United States Marine Corps as a medic and has been in the healthcare field ever since. He's also an outdoor enthusiast, and he took his love of the wilderness and his knowledge of medicine and combined them. He now trains guides and outdoor enthusiasts in wilderness first aid, including tick-borne illnesses and initial treatment. We contacted him in Victoria. Hello there, Michael. Hello, Sarah. How does wilderness first aid differentiate from other first aid classes? Uh, Well, I'd say two things. Uh, One, we teach it with the assumption that anyone performing wilderness first aid will have a patient for a much longer time than you would typically in a city first aid uh, situation. Um, And then second, uh, with seemingly minor issues like uh, headaches or sprains or rashes or bites, uh, those require some special skills and knowledge to be able to assess them properly uh, because some of those things can turn out to have potential long-term complications for the patient down the road. And so being able to identify that, ooh, this is a problem that we have to see a doctor in the next few couple of days versus this is something that can wait till you get home in two weeks, right? Who are the people that participate in your courses at Slipstream? Uh, most are outdoor leaders, so like instructors or guides, uh, outdoor education teachers, park wardens, and occasionally we get serious recreationalists as well. How do you train people to consider a tick-borne illness? Uh, the first thing I do is prevention training, to be honest, because that's always the best approach, right? So teaching these outdoor leaders to teach daily tick checks, which significantly reduce the risk of tick-borne illness. Um, The other part of that is knowing what people have to look for, right? So these outdoor leaders need to be able to teach their participants uh, how to find these ticks, right? Adults are relatively easy to find in most cases, but nymphs are very small and so quite difficult to find. Um, and so being able to teach this to trip participants and what, what a tick check entails and where you're most likely to find them and these kind of things um, takes a bit of training. Uh, the second thing I would say is tick-borne illnesses are going to generally be part of a differential diagnosis, so all the different things that could be wrong with somebody with the kind of symptoms that they're presenting. Um, in situations where you have, like, bites or rashes, uh, any condition where you have multiple system symptoms, so different systems in the body, like your skeletal systems, your bones and your joints, uh, your neurological system, so, you know, your nerves and your brain, 
um, gastrointestinal symptoms, you know, your stomach and your GI tract, uh, cardiac symptoms. So when you have multiple system symptoms, right, that's a indicator potentially of a tick-borne illness as well. Uh, history of a known attachment, so people that have maybe done a tick check and found a tick and then subsequently removed that tick, hopefully properly, and then saved the, saved the critter. Uh, also a patient history of travel. Right, because uh, Lyme disease is an example in that symptoms usually appear three to 30 days after the bite. So somebody could come on my 10-day trip, you know, a week after they were somewhere else. And so they could have gotten a tick bite in another location, and now they're on my trip and they're having symptoms. So even though my trip may not be in an area that's endemic for the geotech, then it doesn't mean that the person can't be sick with a tick-borne illness, right? So, Yeah, that's a really great point. And uh, just even the idea of keeping that uh, as a differential diagnosis is so important. If yeah. somebody did have a known tick bite and they had an onset of signs and symptoms, would that, is that possibly should be considered a medical evacuation? Uh, it should definitely, yeah. Uh, we consider it a serious evacuation. I wouldn't say it's a critical evacuation. Um, but the reason it's serious is because the long-term morbidity issues, the you know, morbidity is morbidity is your overall general health basically, you know, deteriorating, right? That long-term issue risk is quite high with things like Lyme disease and stuff. Um, the sooner it's treated, the less likely you're going to have those kind of problems. Because the risk of long-term morbidity, so a deterioration of that patient's uh, current state of health, um, getting the patient out so they can get properly assessed by a physician and then treatment early is really important with tick illness. And so, yes, we need to evacuate people. We can't wait till they get home and see their family doctor. So you have a lot of outdoor uh, leaders coming to your courses. How seriously do they take Lyme disease? People pay attention, right? Uh, these are all outdoor people that spend time outside. And most of them know somebody who's gotten a tick-borne illness of some sort. I've had quite a few students in the class that have had tick-borne illness and have told us their stories. And uh, so it's people are taking it quite seriously. Now, how serious they take it in the field I think most of us, I find myself, oftentimes even with my family when I'm out, um, not reminding people to do a tick check in the evening before they go to bed and things like that. Um, But these are things that we should be doing. Do you hear from your participants about first aid protocols or policies that are in place for different organizations? Uh, I do fairly regular. I get students that even email me and ask what should we be doing about this and you know especially now with COVID that's a pretty common one um, and I get people that send me their their current um, procedures and protocol stuff regarding things and so TICS is one of the things that's fairly high on that list as well is how, how should we be educating participants on a trip you know when we have all this other stuff to do as well so now, I heard that you have a training scenario where you might use a little prop of a sesame seed. Can you tell me about that? <laughs> uh, yeah, so I, use a, I actually use a flax seed. And uh, I just 
some basic uh, kindergarten clear glue, and I just glue it on somebody, you know, with a little redness around it. And um, sometimes I'll put a bullseye-style rash on the person as well and give them some vague symptoms and run the scenario and see how the students do and how they deal with it and how they think, how their mind wraps around that potential problem. Yeah. Can you remind us of some of the most common areas where we might find a tick on our bodies or on the bodies of our children or our, even our pets, I suppose? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, pets are hairy in most cases, right? So ticks can be almost anywhere on pets in my experience. I used to have a dog and found them all over the place on him. But for humans, typically creases in the body, so your popliteal space behind your knee, the cruel fold where your bum cheek meets the back of your thigh, um, where your belt would be. You know, ticks are heading upwards because most mammals cannot remove a tick from places around their neck, right? So ticks are heading upward for that reason, basically. Uh, and then when a tick gets to a place where it can't really go any further or maybe it's too lazy to go any further, it just settles down at that one spot. So if you imagine yourself as a critter climbing up towards your neck, you know, think about the challenges of that and where you're going to settle down. So your crotch, your belt line, creases in your body. And if they make it all the way up to your head, you can even find them in your head. I found an engorged tick on the very top of my head once. So, you know. Well, there's another thing we have in common, because the one that bit me was in the back of my head, too. (laughs) Oh, right on. (laughs) Yeah. Now, if we do find a tick, what are some considerations for removing a tick? Uh, Well, the first one is you want to try to keep the tick alive. So all the old wives' tales about using, you know, lighting a match and then blowing it out and putting it on the tick or Vaseline uh, or unscrewing the tick. I seem to get that one a lot and people seem to think they're reverse threaded. So you have to turn them the other way. Like these are all wives sales that are most likely going to cause you to kill the tick, maybe even leave the tick's mouth parts inside your skin. Right. So they're not recommended. Uh, we recommend using a tick tool, removal tool of some sort. There's many different kinds out there. They're not hard to find. And those tools are designed to kind of slot the tick into a little groove, and then you just lift straight up. And what it does is it tend, it keeps the tick alive. You want to take that tick, you want to put it in a plastic bag or something similar, a little container of some sort, and um, the person who the tick was on gets to keep it. And they should keep it for a few months, right? Uh, we're recommending three months right now. And... Um, you need to monitor yourself or this person needs to monitor themselves for tick-borne illness symptoms. If they have symptoms, they take their tick with them to their physician. Oh, the tick should be stored in a refrigerator. They'll think it's winter and they'll just go into like a hibernation state called torpor. Uh, but then they take this tick with them if they have symptoms, and it's much easier to find bacterium. Borrelia burgdorferi is the name of the bacteria that causes Lyme disease. It's much easier to find that bacteria in the tick than it is to find it in you. So that's how you want to approach it. 
That's great. Thank you so much, Michael. And uh, we did do an interview earlier on with Justin Wood from Genetics, which is a private Canadian lab that does test ticks for different tick-borne illnesses. So that is another place where people can send can send uh, ticks for testing. And in fact, I learned that you they don't need to be alive for testing, which I always thought they did. So that's another interesting fact. But oh, you're, right. you're right. Those myths are crazy. The, the ideas people have of burning ticks or um, putting Vaseline on because that's actually going to cause the tick to regurgitate and put its saliva into your body, which actually means that it's you might then become exposed to a pathogen, which you would not have if, if you hadn't done that. Yeah. Yep, I've heard that as well. Mm-hmm. When you run your courses, what would you consider a success for somebody coming away with this new knowledge? Um, just a reasonably high level of awareness such that, one, they're advising people how to prevent tick-borne illness, but then also, two, if they have a patient who has symptoms, that maybe a little bell goes off in their head and they think, ooh, maybe I should consider this, right? Because people that get tick-borne illnesses initially do not present as being terribly sick, right? And so if I have a patient who's really, really sick, it's easy to make a decision to evacuate that patient. Whereas if I have a patient who's only mildly ill, evacuations are risky, they cost a lot of money, they take out a fair amount of time out of a, you know, a commercial trip. And so I think people tend to go, oh, well, you know, you're not really that sick, right? And so I'm hoping that coming out of our courses, students are at least aware enough to recognize the the warning signs and think and consider tick-borne illness as a differential diagnosis, right? And if it's a possibility, get the patient out. That's all I can hope for. And what is the level of awareness out there for tick-borne illnesses? Um, I think it's getting better, but I do think that there's still an awful lot of misunderstanding and myth that just doesn't seem to want to go away. So, I, I mean, it is getting better, but we're not there yet. We still have a lot of education to do, as you know. So as we wrap up, what do we need to do to help uh, clarify some of that information and break down some of those myths? Ooh, I wish I had a good answer for that as an instructor. I fight that all the time with all kinds of topics, not even not just tick-borne illness. Um, but yeah, we got to get people believing in science, <laughs> right? And make sure they understand. I think the other thing too, though, is uh, quite often we like to talk at a reasonably high level and use big fancy words when we should dumb things down so the average person can kind of wrap their head around stuff. <laughs> That's what our jobs are as teachers is to make help people understand things. And so, you know, I think quite often in organizations and in the science community, we tend to to talk at a high level. Um, and that's exclusive. That leaves a lot of people out of the out of the conversation. And we need to not be doing that. We need to talk in such a way that people can understand and that people can wrap their head and understand the risk and and convince people to do tick checks. <laughs> it's that's a really hard thing to do, to be honest. 
Oh, those are such great points. Thank you so much for your time today, Michael, and uh, have, oh, fun, have fun on your next adventure. I know you're off on lots of them. <laughs> Will do. All right. Take care. Okay. Bye. Yep, you too. Bye now. That was a great interview, and there are definitely still some myths that we need to break. One of the things that I really liked was that they're teaching people to keep the ticks if they find them on the person. So, it sounds like we need to learn how to do tick checks. And in the words of country star Brad Paisley, I'd like to check you for ticks. <laughs> See you next time on the next podcast of Looking at Lyme. This is your host, Sarah Cormode, for the Canadian Lyme Disease Foundation. Stay safe in the outdoors. Mm-hmm.